We're going to learn how to scale up the volume first. Yeah, mine's on too. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Everybody. So um, it's a pleasure to be here uh, with Bob. I should say Professor Sutton, is that right? I think Bob's right. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to start with is, um, uh, Sarah mentioned a number of your books. Uh, I think maybe the best titled book of all time is The No Asshole Rule. Uh, <laughs> So I've, I've always very original, but it's, yeah, I've, I've always liked that one. But uh, even going all the way back to a book I read many years ago uh, when I was working as a manager, the Knowing Doing Gap, uh, which is about uh, why is it that we know what organizations should do and yet they don't, uh, and of course the new book, which you should all make sure you get a copy if you didn't get one today, Scaling Up Excellence. If, if I kind of look at all those books as kind of what's a theme that's running through your research, uh, it, it occurs to me that it's that organizations are really stupid. And they often do the wrong thing, and, and why is that? Well, I, I, I don't actually think organizations are really stupid. I, I just think sort of like it's hard to be a human being. It's even harder to be an organization, that there's a lot of things that organizations need to do to be effective. Um, and uh, it, it's just difficult, too. I mean, I, probably the most interesting idea I still think from the knowing doing gap is the fact that many of us live in worlds where we get paid to do smart or say smart things, not to actually do them. And, and it's really interesting how much money I've been paid to say that um, rather than to help organizations actually do something about it. So I'm pretty hypocritical about it and I keep taking the checks for some reason. But, but if you think about it, it, actually doing stuff is difficult. I mean, it, so, so uh, somebody mentioned design thinking at Stanford. We've got something called the Stanford D School where our motto is do to think. It's so hard. It's unbelievable because, I mean, and it's also really inefficient. So we send these smart 4.0 Stanford students uh, and it's a really hard place to get into and for the first time in their life they fail because they are actually doing something. It's really upsetting. So, um, so anyway, yeah, organizations are tough. But most organizations muddle ahead, like most of us human beings, and we, we make a life, and it turns out okay. Uh, so I, I, want, I want to I get into you, why. I don't know what you were getting at. Well, anyway. I, I'm curious how you got into this line of research in the first place. The knowing doing gap? Well, and, and eventually to, to the many years you spent on, on scaling of excellence. Uh, uh, well, so what happened to me is, unlike most people in this room, I never have had a real job. So that's another sort of irony is, companies pay me to give them advice about places I've never really been able to succeed in working in in my life. But um, so... Um, a lot of working from home, I would guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, the panel that we're talking about how many years they were working from home, I've been writing at home for 35 years because I've always been in a publisher parish job. So uh, the way I got involved in uh, this line of work was I was an academic because I didn't really make it in any real job. because. I wasn't good enough at racing sailboats to get paid for that. Some of my friends were, so I kept going to school. And, um, and then eventually I got a PhD in psychology, which I, I thought meant I was going to be a business school professor. But I got a job in engineering. I can't fix anything and I can't count. And I'm a tenured professor of engineering. You explain that to me. Um, but anyhow, so I spent about 20 years doing peer-reviewed academic research. Um, and then my colleague Jeff Effer came up to me one, one day and said, I've got this idea for a book on the knowing doing gap. Let's write it together. And ever since then, I've become more and more of a, a management or corporate tool working on, uh, on stuff that's allegedly useful. Okay? Does that answer your question? I think, I think it does, as a, as a fellow corporate tool. Yes. Uh, I know it's the kind feeling. of fun. Yeah, it's fun. Um, I like it. 
And, and certainly there's no end of, uh, of hypocrisy in, in trying to tell people what to do when you're trying to get them to actually do something. That's true. But what I like about your brand of that, uh, of that is that it really is research-based, it's evidence-based. And um, you know, there's a lot of management books and business advice that is anecdote-based, that's somebody who became successful and there you should just do what they said. And there's all kinds of other, other kinds of advice out there, but, but you're a proponent of evidence-based management. Uh, so first of all, thank you. It helps us well, to actually know what's going on. Well, what, should I talk about what evidence-based management is? Well, that would so, be great. so at least, and there's a lot of discussion, and it's sort of interesting for all of us in the world that the notion of evidence-based anything is pretty new. So evidence-based medicine is a new idea, so think about that. It's only about 20 or 25 years ago that the evidence-based medicine movement started in the United States, so the evidence-based management movement is, I would say, in a more fledgling state. But, but the thing about evidence-based management that's similar to evidence-based medicine in the way that I think Jeff Pfeffer and I, who worked on this for some years together, tried to practice it, is that uh, you could know every study about exactly how to be a great manager of people or how to design a great organization, but also like a great surgeon, you could read every possible peer-reviewed article, and if you haven't put in the time to actually do the work. It, it, it is a craft that requires spending a lot of time actually doing it. So I, I think there's actually a lot of similarity that it's great to have a surgeon who knows what methods are good versus bad based on the best peer-reviewed studies. But if you're the first person to be operated by that surgeon, you should be very, very nervous. You're probably going to die and something bad's probably gonna happen unless they're getting a lot of adult supervision. And, um, and so, so I, think, I think that there's actually a lot of similarities between the two, that, that my goal is not to have scientists replace managers. My goal is to have experienced managers who have the best evidence at their fingertips and make decisions. And, 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 and one other thing that, I, and I think everybody in this room knows this, and uh, Chip and Dan Heath's great uh, book, Made to Stick, makes this point, is that if you're trying to sell something internally, like remote work, um, uh, you know, it's sort of the one-sentence summary of Chip and Dan's book is that statistics show that people are not swayed by statistics, they're swayed by stories. So, so what you need to do, and Eric's the master of this, is, and, and what we try to do when we write our books, such as the one that Huggy Rao and I just finished, is to look at the best peer-reviewed literature and then tell stories that people actually remember and can enact. So there's a weird sort of balancing act between the two. The people who just tell stories that, that aren't based in, in fact are bullshitting, but people who just give you evidence puts you to sleep. So there's this line, as a, as a change agent in your organization, you've got to learn to walk. So since we're talking about distributed work and remote work all day, I thought we chance to ask you, what is the evidence say about whether that's effective, when it's effective, what, uh, well, yeah, so what, we, what we, the, we were the talking about us? this, which is that, so, and this is in some ways in my past life, but I'm co-founder of something called the Center for Work Technology and Organizations at Stanford, and uh, so I've been kind of around people who study remote work for about 15 or 20 years, and, and if you look at all the panels and all the discussion, it's pretty clear that um, what you're all doing is difficult. It, it, and it's, it, it, when you're trying to scale or run an organization using remote work, um, it, there's less transparency, there's more likelihood of dysfunctional conflict. There are many, many problems, but, and we discussed this, and I, I think it's worth noting 
that the idea of remote or distributed work is not a new things for, thing for human beings. Um, and so I think that means that there's some hope. You think about the rise of both the British and Roman Empire. That required all sorts of distributed um, methods. Uh, you think about missionaries. Um, one really interesting sort of body of research that I've been exposed to at one point was long-haul truck drivers. Their jobs were a lot more fun before they got that electronic tracking where people could see how fast they were going. <laughs> Remember every now and then you'd see the truck go down um, like I-5 at 90 miles an hour? That doesn't happen anymore because somebody knows exactly how fast they're going. So, so, um, so yes, it's difficult, but my reaction is, well, if we didn't have distributed work, there would be no Roman or British Empire, there'd be no long-haul trucking, there never would have been um, any any sort of navies. Remember the, the whalers at Nantucket? That was really, for years, that was interesting that they'd send the men out on boats for like a year and a half at a time and someone other keep that distributed organization going. So, so what you're doing is not a new thing for human beings. The problem is you've got to choose, somebody told me there's 2,000 collaboration tools. They did not have that problem in Nantucket. They just had letters, right? So, um, so in some ways it's more difficult for you, but, but, I, but I think it's an old thing and human beings have figured it out and, and, and it's necessary given the global economy and given the nature of the work that we do. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, next time someone's complaining that, oh, we can't do remote work because we can't get squiggle to work or something like that, you know, the Roman Empire didn't have squiggle. Yeah, no, they, no, they didn't. They managed, they somehow managed to do, to do some work. Um, but, but anyway, but the, the connection that it's, that it's a hard slog, that it's difficult, I mean, that, if I kind of... Uh, returning to the book, which by the way, Scaling Up Excellence, you really should read this, it's a great book. Uh, if, if I think about the overall theme of the book, one of the things I really came away from is that we all talk about wanting to grow and scale our organizations, uh, but we tend not to talk about how unbelievably difficult it is. Uh, so, you know, maybe you could give people a sense of what your research uncovered in terms of what actually, like, first of all, why is it so hard? And, and what can we well, do about well, it? Well, so it's sort of interesting, before I came here today, I had lunch with two, uh, two guys we know from Twitter who are also discussed in the book, uh, Chris Fry, who's head of engineering, and Steve yeah, awesome. Green, who is his sort of long-term sidekick. And these guys have been scaling things for a long time. The, the job that they had before this, they, they kind of come as a pair, as it was described to me, was they scaled up the development organization at Salesforce from 40 to 600. So Steve Green looks at me, this is about 1220, he said, so do you have any case where it was easy? And we don't have a single case where it's easy. And, 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 and the distinction I sort of like to make, if I'm allowed to swear, um, is there's snafu. So I'm a child of a World War II veteran. That's how old I am, a veteran of the Battle of the Bulge. So I used all these US Army acronyms when I grew up. And he always used to talk about the difference between snafu and foobar. Snafu is situation normal, all fucked up. And FUBAR is fucked up beyond all recognition. And so in some ways, when it comes to scaling, and, I, and you think places like Facebook and Google that seem to go so quickly to um, organizations we talk a lot about in the book and had a lot of connections to, uh, those were places where if it was just normally fucked up, it was fine. It's when things really went, really went out of control. And in fact, uh, Chris was saying at Twitter, that's one of the great things about having somebody in your startup who used to work at Twitter in the early days. No matter how bad it is, nothing rattles you because everything was always crashing and burning. So, so that notion of sort of, um, sort of pushing forward is really important. And, and one thing that, that, that I would say, and I think this is really important for scaling, that, that people who are good at scaling in long-term planning in general 
have a really weird combination of optimism and pessimism, because I, I really am an optimist despite all this ranting, which is that um, in, in, in there's some pretty good research on creative people because um, researchers were trying to figure out, is it better to be an optimist or a pessimist? And the answer is sort of yes. And here's why it's yes. That you know those sort of people who are just always so optimistic and think everything's going to come out great in the end, but they don't really want to think about the details? You know how shitty they are at things? That's the worst possible situation. And then there's a the kind of people who just tells you how everything sucks constantly and it sucks. Those are also bad. The best kind of people, and it's very important for scaling and, and for anything new you're doing, are what I would call happy warriors, which is, in Steve Jobs, our friend David Kelly, we're both IDEO fellows. God knows what it means for us to be an IDEO, IDEO fellow. Our cl we're cla Steve was classic and David Kelly is also classic in that they paint these pictures of these big, great things and they're really optimistic about the future, but they're always worrying about the little details of getting the daily work done. And I think that for scaling, and you know a lot more about this than I do, or for building a, a company, that that combination of optimism and pessimism is just about right. And, and, and one thing that we look for and that's why on teams, if you have too many optimists or too many pessimists, you kind of want to have a, a balance of both of those moods. So if you're really happy-go-lucky and don't worry enough, pair up with a worrier. And if you're a worrier and you're not optimistic enough, pair up with, a, with somebody who's unrealistically optimistic. That's how great, um, great teams are built. One of the things that uh, has come up a lot today, but, but also in the book, is about using tempo and timelines to kind of keep people synchronized and how important that is. So yeah, so let's talk about that because what, one of the, the puzzles in building an organization or a team, and there's lots of evidence to support this, is that as organizations or just teams get larger, you do need, I'm very sorry, you do need more hierarchy, you do need a little bit more process, and you do need a little bit more specialized roles. But your goal is, and Ben Horowitz from uh, Andreessen Horowitz is very good about this, your goal is to, is to insert as little as you can possibly get away with. So it doesn't feel like the friction. And one of the tricks, and this kind of brings us back, there was one of the earlier talks, and I, it was civic something. What was the rest of the organization? Was civic action. So they talked about how they had these weekly sort of check-in meetings, and they have, um, they'd have uh, three-month goals, and there was some discussion of even sort of 30-day personal projects. One thing, and this is especially important for remote work, but it, you also see it in scaling of organizations uh, um, like, well, Facebook's actually one, one that did this, and, uh, and, and lots of other ones that are good at um, getting people in these sort of locked-in rhythms, because when people are locked into the same rhythms, then, um, then they know both what I should be doing and when I should be doing it. And also it's easier to have empathy for others because if everybody on your team has the same two-week deadline, then you sort of know kind of how they're feeling. So um, especially when you're in a remote team or remote organization where it's harder to be empathetic and be in the same rhythms as others, to the extent you can have the same time rhythms, I think that it actually helps sort of lock people in without having to um, focus on their behavior too closely. Uh, I'm getting the instruction to make sure to remind people that they can ask questions using the URL on the slide because we are going to take questions from the audience, although if you don't have any questions, I'm having a great time. So 
Uh, it's no problem. This has been this has been very entertaining. Yeah, ask me annoying questions. I'm a professor. I like annoying questions. Yeah, if you can stump the professor, then you you definitely get some some kind of extra. Well, well, prize. I'll change the subject if it's too hard. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Uh, then we're not then we're not worried. Um, so, what in the course of the research uh, going into the book on scaling, what surprised you the most? Well, we sort of touched on it a little bit. So uh, just to go back in some ways, that I, I'm sort of an old hippie, and I was raised in a family of actually a crazy Jewish entrepreneur where we were taught to despise authority. Why were you looking at me when you said that? I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyways, so, but, but one of the really sort of uh, surprising things about the book was, at, and, 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 and people who are real hardcore entrepreneurs don't necessarily like this, is that as organizations grow, you do, need, and I already said this, you do need more structure and more process. And I'll give you a, a really good, simple example, one that really struck me, and the kind of size of organizations that Eric looks at. There, there's, a, there's a company called Pulse or Pulse News, which was recently acquired um, by LinkedIn for about 90 million bucks. It was started by two Stanford students, Ankit and Akshay are their names. And so, literally, in 2010, they got in line, 2010, April 6, 2010, the day that the first iPad came out, they got in line, uh, they got the first iPad, and they wrote an app, which is, which is Pulse, and it was done within two weeks, and by the end of the 10-week quarter at Stanford, they had $330,000 worth of this app that they sold. Sort of a good story, but, so, okay, so they get their venture capital money, and, and they start out with four or five people, and things are working pretty well. Then they get up to 11 people. Everything turns bad, and this is like, they did not have the remote problems you folks talked about. They started fighting. They started doing crappy work, all these um, problems. What they did was they broke themselves into four teams. So that's mostly duos and one trio, if you do the math. And, and they would all sit in the same room, a room much smaller than this, and they'd kind of code and work all day. And every afternoon, each team would stand up, or mostly duos, and say, here's what we did today. Here's the problems we're having. Can you help us? Which is sort of like your teams. And, and if you think about that, what did they do? Well, they actually had a little bit more authority because Ankit and Akshay were the ones who imposed this structure. And then the other thing that happened was they broke into smaller teams and they had a little bit of process. And, and is, is in, so for us, one of the biggest um, scaling challenges is as organizations get larger and more complex, to, to, to really stay on that edge where you've got just enough authority but, and structure and process. And to go back to Chris Fry and Steve Green, they've got a really good test, which is that are your organization's processes making it easier for you to actually get your job done, or does it feel like you're walking in muck? And, 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 and Eric, and despite his, his book, or maybe because of it, he works with a lot of big companies, and um, it was sort of interesting. I went to a, an event at Intuit, which is a pretty interesting company. It's got an um, interesting group of leaders, and um, they kind of decided, and this comes from Brad Smith, the CEO, that um, as they grew larger and had all this process and put all these roles in, that uh, the most important people in the company, and the most important people in the company they decided are design engineers, were having more and more trouble getting their products out to market because there was so much friction. So what they did was they started looking for sources of friction and removing it with the design engineer as king I, or queen. And I, I think that that was a pretty good solution to realizing that we have to get rid of the muck. And if you go back to the just Ankit and Akshay with those 11 people in the room in Palo Alto, downtown Palo Alto, they had, 
the same sort of issue. They had to have just enough structure to do their work. And, and, and that's one of the most challenging things for scaling an organization, whether it's remote or face-to-face -face or a combination of the two. Totally. I mean, I, I talk to entrepreneurs all the time who hate big companies, and that's why they decided to do a startup, because they hate big companies. And I always ask them the same question. If you hate big companies so much, why are you trying to create a new one? And they get, they get stumped because people imagine that what scaling is going to look like is I know all the things that are wrong with big companies. I, right. you know, I was the person who really understood things. Of, you know, the rest of the organization was pretty stupid. When I create a new organization in my image, this is certainly what I expected the first time I did it, uh, everyone will be smart like me and we won't have any of those big company problems. And then they're, you know, they're surprised by what happens uh, afterwards. And one of the things that I have been advocating, and I just, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to get your take on it, because I, I would love to know, is that no matter what size company you are, you should view entrepreneurship as a corporate function, and that you should view the startup as a kind of team. It's like a tool in the management toolbox to say, look, let's put a startup on that. Let's make this person like an Intuit with the design engineer. Let's say that this person has the moral authority to make a decision around this you know, bounded product or, or initiative or whatever it is. And because even if you are a great entrepreneur who founded the company, at some point, you'll have at least one other person who works for you. Uh, and then that person might not be the world's greatest entrepreneur, because if they were, why are they working for you? So then how do we start to create those processes to, to make that not just entrepreneurship is something that happens, or a product you know, innovation is something that happens as a single product, but rather as kind of a core discipline of the company? Well, well, you know a lot more about this than I do, but the first thing that comes to mind that when I see, and I hate that word entrepreneurship, but when it actually happens, it, yeah. um, very often when it happens is that, uh, is that you've got a situation where you've got a team or, or even an individual who smart leaders have the, the sense to put somewhere else and just ignore. And, and, and to sort of leave them alone and, and to create fire for them and to, and to give you just one great book. So um, even though uh, like Eric and I have both written books, and, uh, but my very favorite creativity book, um, although Ed Catmull's new book, Creativity Incorporated, is great. It's but really great, yeah. It's really great. But my favorite one of all is Orbiting the Giant Hairball. And, 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 and it was written by this, the guy who was the creative paradox. That was his name at Hallmark Cards. And it, it is a wonderful book. It'll take you like 20 minutes to read. And since he was a, a Hallmark card designer, it's got the weirdest drawings you've ever seen in your life. But, but what his point was, and it's what it reminds me of, was, well, so how do you be, remain creative when you're in a large organization? And, and one thing that's interesting, so many of you do remote work. This may be a function that you're actually serving. So the argument in the book is that if you get too distant from the hairball, which is that big mess of the giant corporation, then you don't un know what's going on and you can't have any understanding and you can't have any influence. But if you get in the middle of it, you're just blinded by all the politics and all the money and all the madness. So his suggestion, the reason it's called orbiting the giant hairball, is he said you should sort of stay in orbit around it and every now and then sort of touch down and sort of give them your ideas and sort of figure out what's going on and then go back into orbit. And I think that organizations that create successful entrepreneurs um, do that. And I, and, and, and I'm even thinking of uh, one of the, the, the craziest guys I ever interviewed, um, a really interesting guy, Mitch Kapoor of Lotus fame, the ultimate guy who started a company and did not want to have a big company. He just had a few friends and he looked around, he's head of this like 5,000 um, person organization and he it, it eventually just kind of left it and things turned out very well for him financially, but Mitch has not been in a large organization ever, ever since. But one of the things that he did that was smart was there was a guy named Ray Ozzie 
who had this idea for what was eventually became Lotus Notes, and he took Ray out of the hairball and moved him a few miles away from, uh, from the hairball, and that's where there were only two ever successful products in the history of Lotus, Lotus 123, which Mitch and his team did, and Lotus Notes. That was the thing that made the company big enough it could be sold to IBM for a fortune. But that idea of knowing when to sort of separate and what to come back into the hairball, to me, is one of the arts of, of having some creativity. I don't know if that fits your experience, but... Uh, I'm going to start using that. That's great. Yeah, it's a Tell great people the title of the book again. Orbiting the Giant Hairball. Okay. And I wish I could remember the name of the author. It's, it, it's, it's so much fun. Only well, there was some kind of worldwide informational network people had in their pocket to look <laughs> these things up on. Like, yeah, somebody's it'll, probably already bought it in the audience. It'll never work. Forget it. Uh, okay, before, before I continue, people want to know if you said Happy Warrior or Happy Worrier. Oh, I didn't. I said happy warriors, but happy warriors are good too. So let's talk about happy warriors, because so happy warriors. So so one of the things, and it's interesting in some of the the uh, folks from companies, people would talk about conflict, and when it comes to creative work, this is one of the most important things you can do is learn how to fight. And I realize that on the web, this is even more of a problem when you're doing when you're doing stuff that's technologically mediated via email, phone, or even video, that, that it, it's, it's much more difficult to get the nuance. But being in relationships with people where you can fight constructively, and there's all sorts of evidence about this, that the most creative teams know when and how to have a good fight over ideas, and they know when to stop fighting and to join arms and to implement. I, I, the, the company in the Valley most well known for this is probably Intel, where they teach all employees constructive confrontation. Uh, one of the most interesting people I know um, around here, there's a guy named Brad Bird. Brad is the Academy Award-winning um, director of Ratatouille um, and, the, and the famous Incredibles, really one of the most creative guys you ever, you ever met, and uh, famous for having great, loving, constructive fights. And if you know people who've worked at Pixar, Brad's very well-loved and fights with everybody absolutely like crazy. And, and, and having taught at Stanford now for 30 years, this is my 30th anniversary, um, having seen all these really smart individuals who you know, were all valedictorian and so on in their high school class, the one thing I think that we're failing, or one of the things we're failing in, in, even in our elite education and we're failing at Stanford, although we're trying, is, is uh, teaching people to fight constructively in a way is really an important skill. Uh, and, and, there are, and there are some leaders, Brad Bird, um, um, Intel, in, in, in the best places, where people do know how to fight in this atmosphere of mutual respect. But to me, it's really an important thing. And, and as I say, for those of you who are doing distributed work, it's even more difficult, and I would argue even more important. So we have an audience question, which is uh, related to this, which is how, as you grow, uh, and you want to have a kind of culture that holds people together and that, that follows the kind of excellent mm -hmm. suggestions we've been talking about. Uh, how do you prevent against creating a monoculture where you kind of have groupthink and, and everyone's the same? Well, so groupthink is kind of pejorative. And, um, and, and, and groupthink sort of implies that, that we all think the same, so none of us think very much. And, and, that, and, and that's kind of, to me, what groupthink is. And, and I, I would argue, and, and this is one of the key points in the book, that when we look at organizations that scale effectively as they get larger, um, although they'll, they'll disagree, they'll have deviance, but people have a real clear sense of what's sacred and what's profane or taboo in that organization. And, and to me, the organizations at scale 
um, keep that going and going. And I'll just I'll give you an example because uh, I've done enough talks with this book. Um, so I gave a talk they called Fishbowl at Amazon. It's about 150 diverse people from Amazon. So I said to them, from all different businesses, I mean, some people were, I didn't know they were opening a new grocery delivery business, for example. But like they're in every known business now, right? So you say to them, 150 diverse people, what's sacred, what's taboo here? Boom. Sacred is customer, taboo is wasting money. I think they are cheaper than Walmart, which is really saying something. We've ever dealt with Walmart. But one of the things that I believe has helped them scale is especially for us as customers, it's unbelievable. And, and one thing, a, a test I suggest that you try next time you have trouble with Amazon, write an email to Jeff at Amazon. Um, the most amazing thing is, is it doesn't get answered by Jeff very much. But it's amazing how senior the person who answers it. And, and Eric and I both have had this relationship with Amazon where, so I'm an author, um, I, I, I'm an Amazon associate, so when you buy my book on my website, I get 5%. And all, I have all these different relationships with Amazon. My publisher tries to influence them. They, the worst person ever to approach Amazon as a publisher. Never they have your pub publisher do it's that. It's just yeah, useless. They, they get, and, but if you write them as a customer, that's when you get the best response still. Um, as an author is the other way I've written them. And, and so, and the reason that I bring that up, when organizations are unclear about what's sacred and what's taboo, that's when they get in trouble. And, and just to show you the sort of range, we all know about Facebook's move fast and break things uh, culture. Uh, and, and you'll see this in the first uh, chapter of the book. We spend a lot of time talking um, to the folks at Facebook in engineering, especially Mike Trofer and uh, Chris Cox. Um, Mike Truffer is the CTO and Chris is the head of product. And they run still this six-week boot camp where when you get hired by Facebook as an engineer or other technical person, you work in 12 or 13 different um, projects and you do real work. You actually make changes in the site. And what you're doing is you're living the move fast and break things culture. So to me, um, and, and that's not necessarily groupthink, it's, it's what works best for them. And to be clear, move fast and break things may not be the best thing for your organization. It's just what they think is best for them. Um, when we were working on the book, I talked to somebody from VMware and I said, do you have a move fast and break things culture? And he said, no, especially in our unit that makes software for nuclear submarines. So, so you got to be kind of careful about where you apply something mindlessly. But, but I do like the example of, of sort of Amazon. And, and, and you look at Apple, they have a completely different set of, of mindsets. I mean, not, they're not cheap in the same way, for example. Or as customer focused. I don't think they've ever cared about us at all, really. You would just use your phone for five minutes. To it's, find it's like out. we're yeah. gods. Listen to us, honest. Um, one of the things I really like about uh, your approach is that it's just as you're saying, uh, there's not like a one right best culture, best set of principles. Each organization has to find kind of what works for them. And one so, of the so, well, so let me oh, yeah. a quick footnote. There's there is one thing that we do see in all cultures that work, and I saw it with the people sitting on the stage here. And and to steal a line from Brad Bird, it's this kind of relentless restlessness that nothing is ever good enough. And it's just the opposite of complacency. And, 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 uh, and, and Brad tells the story, one of the things that really pissed him off when he was 23 years old, he went to work for Disney, the animation studio in the old days. And his boss, who was head of Disney uh, Studios, walked up to him and said, I'm satisfied. I think what we're doing is good enough. He said, at that point, I got an argument with my boss and got fired. And, um, 
And, and, and that kind of restlessness, it, to me, is a hallmark of at least every successful culture that I've seen, from Amazon to Apple to Google, it's, you, can, you can smell it. Yeah, so, so one of the questions we got is uh, about Tony Shea of Zappos, who, who said he was going to restructure his whole company uh, with no hierarchy. Oh, that's, a, that's an, okay, so, so yeah, I, I, just, I knew you would have a comment. Okay, so, so, you, so you can see my blog post on this, which is on, on LinkedIn, and you can see the response from the people who sell this thing called holacracy, okay? First of all, there is a hierarchy. Uh, and let me start with Tony Shea told them to do a holacracy. <laughs> Let's just start with, so there is at least one person above it. There are also people who they don't call managers, but are responsible for hiring and firing and for dealing with screwed up teams. And this, you can see all this in this blog post I did in LinkedIn. I, I think it's called hierarchy is good, um, hierarchy is essential, and more isn't always better. That's what I said, or less isn't always better. But, but so, so there is hierarchy. Um, there, is, there is a process it, 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 in what they're doing. Let's go back to sort of Chris Fry's notion, who also weighed in on this, is what you want to do is have as little bureaucracy as possible and still make it possible to do their work. So they are pushing more responsibility and authority down on the teams, which I think is the right thing. But there's still process, there's still specialized roles, and there's people who aren't called managers who perform what I would call the managerial function. So, so, I, so I do think that, that the change that he's done is probably good, and I, I think actually he's a brilliant guy, but there is hierarchy, there is process, and there is specialized roles, which is the hallmark of any organization of any size. Okay, got it. No, no, so so, a, man, I love, I love so a manager by any, by any other name is still a manager. Still a man. so, yeah. but, but, I, I, but, but sometimes just relabeling something um, forces you to think about, well, what do we actually need to get done rather than I'm a manager and I'm in charge. So I, I think that some mindfulness is always a good thing. So one of the things I know a number of people in the audience and watching the live stream at home have, have confronted is they, they have been the person in their organization advocating for a good practice or a policy, like, for example, mm -hmm. allowing remote work or distributed work, but not exclusively. And one of my favorite things from the book is you talk about finding kind of pockets of excellence and then figuring out how to scale those up through the whole right. organization. Uh, a lot of the people in this room have either have been or are right this very minute probably taking notes from this conference. They want to be the change agent to see that change scaled up. Do you have a tip for them on how to actually well, make that happen? Well, well, so you're obviously all in different places in your organization with different size teams and different amounts of, of power. And following Eric's point, when we see large-scale organizational change happens, it's not like this thin coat of uh, sort of like peanut butter that's spread across the organization. So with all due respect, just going to a conference on the advantages of, um, of, of uh, you know, working at home or, or um, being without the office is probably not enough to bring about change. When we see change... Well, Bob, what if they come to the conference and they also read your book? Um, that's still not enough. <laughs> but thank you for reading the book. Um, or your book. And, but, but, but what we see is that there's real pockets of excellence in, in, in this case, it would be pockets where uh, remote work is really working. And then what happens is, instead of saying, oh, we're all going to do remote work, what you do is you spread it to the next group, and then the next group, and the next group, and you create one pocket of excellence after another. And, and, and that approach to scaling, we see that in everything from IT rollouts to the way that, and somebody said earlier today that uh, we hire slowly and fire quickly. Again, that's one of those sort of characteristics that you've got to sort of be patient in the process. And, and to me, this sort of combination of patience and restlessness 
is really one of the keys. You've got to be patient and realize it takes a while, but you've got to be impatient about how we have not accomplished enough to, to today or this week. And that weird kind of hypocrisy that, that I see, it's not hypocrisy, it's sort of a, a useful inconsistency um, to link the short term and the long term is, is what I see when people scale stuff. So start pushing people around you as much as you can, but get them to actually live the behavior. Don't just talk to them about it, because that's how human beings change, it's when they actually try something. Okay, we are way we are way over time oh, actually, but wait, but I just couldn't stop. But I got one very important and serious question for you, which is just: Have you seen the new HBO Silicon Valley? Yes, I have seen and, it. And what do you think? So I want to hate it, but I can't. <laughs> I don't know how you feel, but so, so I've been teaching the Stanford Engineering School for 30 years, and everything is so so. I go to faculty meetings with people who are like that, but are much older. So, so yeah. So, well, what do you think of it? Because I want to hate it, but I that's my reaction. Oh, oh, yeah. There's not one episode that goes by where I'm like, no, yeah, that's happened. I've lived through that. Yeah. Oh, they, uh, that sucks. Yeah, they, they got it right. But did you get royalties on the asshole episode? That's what I wanted to know. No, I did not get royalties. <laughs> really but, uh, I, I don't think I deserve royalties. I think that word was around long before I was born. So. <laughs> all right, very cool. I just hope uh, you all had as much fun as I did, and, and join me in thanking Bob. Really, Thanks, this Sarah. is awesome. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we are going to bring Sarah back up. Okay. All right, this way.